Hello all, warmest welcomes to yet another episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each week or thereabouts I base myself solely in my spare room to look at and bring to your ears accounts of the more obscure, often forgotten and usually unfamiliar cases from all across the UK and Ireland. I'm your host Paul, the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, where it's wonderful as ever to be back with you all after my housekeeping week off. I thank you all very much for joining me today, and I hope that as you tune in, the episode finds every one of you all well and good. The massive thanks to everyone who got in touch concerning the previous two-part episode of the show, The Grave at Grev Delec, for your thoughts and feedback. Absolutely brilliant of you, and I gather that it was thought an interesting case, judging by the comments that I received back. He even got some stunning shots of the coast there over at Grave Delec sent to me and it looks a proper stunning place. It's making me think about having a little trip over to Jersey myself. Now if you have listened to it, then as I explained in part two, I was taking a week off to do some show housekeeping and to catch up with a few things. And one of the things I caught up with, part of the time I used, was to get July's very, very late bonus Patreon episode all squared away. Bonus episode number 19, The Leftover List. Now that one's a tale I've long skirted with for inclusion here on the regular show, but I decided at the last minute it was a better suit for a Patreon episode. Boom, what can I say, these things choose themselves sometimes. You guys can hear this tale and the previous 18 yourselves by becoming a Patreon supporter of the show, which is very simple. There's a nice shiny link in the episode show notes as always, or on the show website. Or you can head over to the Patreon site itself and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Creepy hands sliding down the window. Boom, Robert's your mother's brother. There's several tiers available for supporters, but for less than the price of a pint each month, well, unless you're in the Weatherspoons by me, that is, where you could probably drink yourself to death for 40 quid, you can get 19 to date full-length bonus episodes of the show, with bonus episode number 20 coming shortly. I haven't quite chosen that one yet, but I will do of course, and it'll be out soonest. Massive thanks also to both returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. That's Lydia Sampson, Tanya Wesley, Julia Crane, Jenny, Tina Tong, Laura Bassett, Jodie L. West, Michelle Lloyd, Annie M and David Mullen. Thank you so much for your support folks, it's so kind of you and I hope that you found the bonus content of the show interesting. Now coming in September also, I've been thinking that I want to do a bonus episode for Patreon supporters where you can ask me anything about the show. I may even do this on screen in a video. I've said about doing it before and I don't mind doing it at all. I think it'd be a bit fun to do. I may even have a cheeky little glass of red wine as I do it. Who knows? So if there are any burning questions that you have and you want to see me waffling crap about how the enthusiast comes together each week, then if you want to get in touch with me either by mail or through the show's social media with what you want to know, I'll leave that offer running until the end of August for it to be out sometime in September. Watch this space. In the meantime also, the offer still stands for any listeners who have a case in mind that they think would make for a suitable episode of the show to get in touch to suggest it, whether you've got one in mind or one that you actually want to proper go down the rabbit hole yourself on and research and write up, that's fine. I'm curating right now for the next listener episode of the show that's coming later on this series. But before any of that though, and after my week away, I'm back with another tale.
Now, way back in the first series of the show, I did a two-part episode called The Gay Slayer, which looked at the horrific crimes committed in London in 1993 by a sadistic individual named Colin Ireland, and named so after the moniker that the tabloid press christened him with. Over a period of just a few short weeks, Ireland brought terror to London's gay scene, taking the lives of five gay men that he'd accosted in truly awful circumstances. They really are some of the most bone-chilling crimes that you would have ever heard of, certainly ones that I have. Now, Ireland was thankfully caught before he could inflict any further carnage. He was convicted and sentenced to a whole life tariff for his crimes, and he actually died in prison in 2012. But Ireland isn't the first such killer to bring terror to London's gay scene. A decade before his reign of terror, operating quietly but no less horrifically, and for a lot longer, he also of course had Dennis Nilsson and his Houses of Horror. Now, Nilsson's crimes are very well documented in books, documentaries, and yet podcast episodes indeed. And for an excellent listen about the case, look no further than the one done by Mike over at the Murder Mile podcast, because it's excellent. So I'm not going to cover Nilsson's crimes here myself, and as we've already met Colin Ireland a few series ago, we best have a look at yet another who terrorised London in the intervening period between these two, an often overlooked one, for in the decade between the horrors that Nilsson and Ireland committed separately, in the mid-1980s there was another savage killer stalking the clubs and bars of London's gay scene. All three, albeit at different times, were to even frequent the exact same establishment in central London, a bar formerly known as the Cologne, and to use it as a hunting ground. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or upsetting, so please use discretion whilst listening as always, guys. I should point out that also this week, events mentioned within the episode take place within the context of London's LGBT community, and whilst today it's more recognised than ever for its massive diversity, isn't it? It wasn't always referred to so broadly and indeed correctly. Now I'm very aware of this and I've been conscious to refer as much as narratively possible through the episode to it as such, even though reading some of the acronyms that exist, LGBT itself can be labelled as a bit of an umbrella term. Because the killer who's the focus of this episode targeted exclusively openly gay men, I may refer to places contextually within the episode as being collectively part of, or I may refer to, the gay community or gay scene. I must stress this isn't me being intentionally discriminatory, disrespectful or ignorant of the diversity of the LGBTQI plus community in any way, shape or form or trying to be ignorant of individuality because I know not everyone may feel part of a community. It purely just helps the narrative flow much better within the context of the tale because I was tripping over a bit LGBTQI plus it just doesn't roll properly. Bearing that in mind then, please join the true crime enthusiasts as this week we head back to London to the late spring of 1986 to look at the exploits of an individual in a tale that I've entitled The Wolfman of London. Today the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea in inner city London doesn't need much of an introduction at all. It's widely known for its wealth and affluency as the home of London's Museum District, 
and world-famous shops such as Harrods and Harvey Nichols are just a stone's throw away. Plus there's Kensington Palace of course, where Wills and Kate and their ever-expanding brood live, and the area even has a reality TV show set there that I have to say features some of the biggest possible twats that you could ever come across. Made in Chelsea, the only thing, the only words that come to mind is Jesus wept. Also back in the 1980s though, the areas of Kensington and nearby Earl's Court were reportedly the hub of London's gay scene and indeed the areas that contained the highest population of LGBTQI per head in the United Kingdom. As the gay scene here developed and grew, it attracted people from all over Europe who migrated over to be part of it and help it to grow. And as it did, as well as the developing special interest groups, shall we say, that flourished with this, so too did the scene's own brand of sexual violence. Detectives who'd been summoned to the derelict basement of the house in Kensington's Warwick Road, nearby to Earl's Court Exhibition Building, looked down at the body of the young man that lay before them at their feet and were sadly aware that they'd seen this kind of thing before. Granted, it wasn't always in a dingy basement beneath the terrace of elegant five-storey Edwardian houses, but they'd seen the effects of what was clearly murder many times before. But this one seemed much more savage than others, and looking at the man's body, they could see exactly what had disturbed the two homeless men so much that they'd abandoned all plans to lose themselves in meths for the evening and had instead rushed in shock to nearby Kensington Police Station. The man who lay dead at their feet, they surmised from his strewn around clothing, was a gay male, which was unremarkable enough in that area of London, but from the style of his clothing, most of which appeared to have been roughly torn from his body and most of which was leather, police could see that he'd been into the area's leather scene. Again, nothing unexpected or unremarkable there, but it was the animalistic marks across the man's body that marked this death out as being different. He'd been battered savagely with an instrument, thought to be a bike spanner that was found nearby. Savage deep bite wounds spanned the length and breadth of his stripped corpse, and extensive dried blood around the man's mouth led detectives to discover that his tongue had almost been severed with a chunk bitten out. It was later found spat across the room. Now what must have been a terrifying and agonising ordeal for the man was ended when the assailant had pulled a ligature tight around his neck and throttled him, leaving the material biting into the man's flesh and leaving livid bruising. Human faeces had also been smeared across the man's face and chest. It appeared to be the work of a maniac. I mean, can you imagine that indeed, eh? Wow. But detectives knew from the beginning that this would be a difficult case to investigate. They knew that there was a mistrust of the police and a perceived homophobia within its ranks from the gay community. And perhaps it was this, plus a mix of some people who perhaps would not wish to have their sexuality or business out in the open, that only ever a fraction of the assaults upon members of the gay community were ever reported. There was this persistent belief that police attitudes would never extend further than a distinct lack of sympathy ranging to downright hostility towards them. And sadly, even though many gay men had previously been the victim of violence, they were often unwilling to report any crime or work in conjunction with the police. 
Now, during research for the episode, I looked at the archives of annual reports of Gallup, the LGBT plus anti-violence charity which stemmed from the Gay London Police Monitoring Group that was set up in the early 1980s. And some of the accounts reported there in their historical annual reports, they really do make for quite disturbing reading, I thought. It's very, very clear that shamefully, these fears were very valid and this belief did indeed stem from truth. Absolutely shameful. A link to the Gallup site will be in the show notes this week and the archived annual reports do make for disturbing yet very informative reading if you decide to. And it left me thinking personally that you just hope that a very, very sharp corner has now been turned. So perhaps because of this then, coupled with its international recognition as the up-and-coming place to be, the West London area also had the highest rate of gay murders in the UK. Many resulted from chance meetings in the many bars and clubs of the area, all of which were packed out each night, and as the scene was at the time, often neither the killer nor the victim knew each other's names. It would be a case of stranger murder having stemmed from a random pickup and thus many of the cases remained unsolved. With that in mind, that evening, the 16th of March 1986, as the body was removed from the scene, placed into an ambulance and taken to the mortuary, detectives wondered would they ever see the killer brought to justice. They hadn't even been able to find anything on the man's person to identify him at that time, but that was soon to change. The dead man was ultimately identified as 36-year-old James Burns, an Edinburgh native who lived in Whips Cross Road in Leytonstone and who was employed as a guard for British Rail. James was openly gay and was involved in the leather scene and investigations into his life led police to discover that his favourite hangout, along with scores of others who were into the same scene, was one of London's most well-known gay pubs, the Cologne in Earl's Court, which was just a mile away from the Warwick Road basement. Now, as I mentioned at the onset of the episode, and as I'm sure long-time listeners of the show will remember, back in the first series of the show, we looked at the crimes of another killer who frequented the Cologne, be it more than seven years later, Colin Ireland. Indeed, the Cologne was where he selected the majority of the five men that he killed from, And if you're unfamiliar with that case, then it can be found in the back catalogue of the show in the two-part episode, The Gay Slayer. It's a remarkable story as well, that one is. Although today it's been rebranded as a gastropub and renamed the Pembroke, the Cullen pub, located at 261 Old Brompton Road, had for many years by 1986 been firmly established as a gay pub, being a favoured hangout of well-known celebrities such as Rupert Everett, Norman Bates himself, Anthony Perkins used to go there, and legendary Queen frontman Freddie Mercury when he lived nearby in the area. By the 1970s, it had transformed into a leather bar with fully blacked out windows, behind which the clientele mingled and utilised a colour-coded system of handkerchiefs hanging from their pockets, displaying whether they had a dominant or submissive sexual preference known respectively as tops or bottoms. Plenty of new acquaintances would be made here, with people pairing up as to what suited their preference and often going home with complete strangers. But aside from a few uncertain and decidedly vague reports about James's final movements, 
There was no detailed information coming forward and the investigation soon dried up. It was established though that James had been in the Cologne on the night that he died and detectives decided that it was most likely he'd met and left there with his killer. But they'd met with the suspicion and distrust that we discussed earlier and no one was willing to come forward and help fill in the missing time from James being in the Cologne to his body being discovered in the basement of the house in Warwick Road. Then, three weeks later, another gay man was found murdered, five miles away across the River Thames. On the 5th of April 1986, children playing alongside the main railway line near Ferndale Road in Brixton entered a dingy and derelict railway plate layers hut and discovered the disturbing sight of a half-stripped, mutilated young man. 26-year-old Anthony Connolly had moved down to London several years before as a student, where he'd gained an art degree from St Martin's College. He'd lectured for a while in this role, and had then returned to his native northeast to do the same, but when the teaching position had come to an end there, and he'd returned to London seeking similar work, he'd found himself unable to find a position lecturing. A period spent waiting on in a restaurant had equally dried up and Anthony now found himself unemployed and sharing a council flat in Brixton. That was up until children found his semi-naked body in the derelict railway shed early that Saturday. Like James, Anthony was half naked and had been brutally strangled with a ligature with his body covered with bite marks that had presumably been inflicted in some sort of sexual or maniacal frenzy. Aside from the deep bites, he had marks showing that he'd also been beaten by his killer and an attempt had been made to bite off his penis. The subsequent murder inquiry was led by Detective Superintendent John Shoemake, who ran the murder incident room from one of Scotland Yard's major incident pools at Croydon. And very early on in the investigation, it was established that like James, Anthony was openly gay and was a frequent visitor to several of London's bars and clubs of the scene. He'd last been seen the previous Thursday evening in another of London's well-known gay pubs, the Prince of Wales pub on Brixton's Cold Harbour Lane, which he'd visited in the company of a female friend. He'd left in the early hours of the following morning after telling friends of his at the bar I've just met the most beautiful man. Anthony was never seen alive again. Now although there were obvious similarities in the victimology and the method used to kill, the bite marks and the fact that the Cologne and the Prince of Wales were only about three miles apart as the crow flies, albeit on opposite sides of the River Thames, the crimes were surprisingly at first not linked. Whether there was such a murder epidemic in London at the time that horrific killings such as described were so commonplace that they weren't linked, I'm not sure. And I don't think you could get a clearer cut case of linkage myself there, but what can I say? I'm not a detective. There was a forensic medical delay in Anthony's case, which may have been the reason for this though, and it certainly didn't help matters. When his flatmate went to Southwark Mortuary to identify Anthony's body, he happened to mention to mortuary staff that he himself was HIV positive. Now the staff balked at this and fearing that Anthony may himself have been a carrier of the virus, refused to let a post-mortem examination be carried out upon him. 
Colleagues of theirs from other mortuaries in the area supported them in this and refused to stand in, or indeed to cross the picket line on this stance that had been drawn, and as a result, two weeks passed before a post-mortem was carried out on Antony, and so his exact injuries could not be medically established. This of course hindered the investigation, and it has to be remembered that back in 1986, HIV was nowhere near as widely understood or as treatable as it is today. AIDS was balked at, and although today it's a fact that there still exists around the world a stigma associated with the virus, discrimination was perhaps much more rife back then through nothing more than ignorance. It was also for a long time most closely associated with the gay scene, whereas for the record, the dominant mode of spread for HIV has always been and remains through heterosexual transmission. I can't bear ignorance like that. You know, people ill-informed, terrible. What it boiled down to was that police considered no reason at the time to consider the possibility that there was a double and potential serial killer on the loose and the investigations carried on separately. Now police were to only a few weeks later have their hands full with the campaign of a completely unconnected and different serial killer in the capital, Kenneth Erskine, but right here, right now, they had no reason to confirm Anthony and James's murders as being the work of the same man. Incidentally, Erskine's crimes have also been covered here on The Enthusiast, again back in the very first series of the show, where they were the subject of the show's first ever two-part episode, The Stockwell Strangler. All in the back catalogue for a listen, or a re-listen folks, we did like our London serial killers way back when on the show. But all dismissive thoughts of police that there was a single maniac going around murdering gay men was to change just over a month later, when on the 8th of May 1986, another young gay man narrowly survived a brush with death. David Cole nearly became another victim of the Strangler after visiting one of his favoured haunts that evening, the Market Tavern Pub at Nine Elms in southwest London. The original Waterside pub, which no longer exists now after being demolished some years ago and replaced with some glass and steelwork monstrosity of a bar, was popular with clientele at the time because of its relaxed licensing hours, which stemmed from the pub's proximity to Covent Garden markets and the irregular hours that were kept by market traders and workers. I can't be doing with shiny new places like that. Give me an old kick to bits pub with a decent dookie, a dartboard, a pub quiz maybe, and bar staff that have got more legs than teeth, and I'm happy and much, much prefer that. 30-year-old British rail worker David had spent the evening of Thursday the 8th of May 1986 in the market tavern with friends, and as he was preparing to leave the pub alone to go home for the evening, he'd noticed a good-looking, dark-haired man in a leather jacket and ripped jeans stood against the wall near to the rear door. Catching his eye, David made his way over to the stranger and the two struck up a conversation. After a short time talking, both walked out of the market tavern together and headed for the huge open-air lorry park of the new Covent Garden wholesale fruit market that was nearby. Once here, in the darkness provided by the rows of articulated trailers that lined the park, both men used amyl nitrate, the mild drug that are used to enhance sexual satisfaction, and began foreplay. But then suddenly, 
David realised that the stranger's passion was not what he'd been expecting. The arms that had just before been encircled around his neck suddenly tightened and a ligature wound around his throat began choking David. As he fought desperately for his life, he noticed the look on the dark-haired stranger's face that was just inches from his own. It was flushed, manic and absolutely terrifying. David was mere seconds away from losing consciousness and certain death when using his last remaining ounces of strength, he managed to work the fingers of one hand up between the ligature and his throat. It was just enough to ease the pressure on his windpipe and artery by a mere fraction, but a fraction that was enough for the fight instinct in him to kick back in. He made a last gasp surge against his attacker, and he managed to thrust him away, at which point the stranger abandoned the attempt and ran off into the night. Falling to his knees, David struggled to breathe, but eventually managed to regain his footing and make his way home, still gasping and choking though due to his near strangulation. It was only when he was a short distance away from his home that he realised he subconsciously still had hold of the ligature that had near strangled him. It was a sock made of pure silk. At home in the days following the attack, David rested and decided what he should do. He was reluctant to report the attempted murder to police as he was nervous and distrustful of them and he didn't think that they'd take him seriously. But during the previous weeks, he'd read reports in the newspapers concerning the horrific murders of James Burns and Anthony Connolly and it crossed David's mind that most likely he'd narrowly escaped being victim number three. Now that's got to frighten you somewhat that, hasn't it, eh? It really must. Imagine what that does to your mind. So eventually, after mulling all this over in his mind, David was persuaded to come forward and tell his story to police, and so he telephoned the murder incident room for the James Burns investigation at Kensington. After hearing David's story, a statement was taken from him, but there's some confusion in the reports here. Several sources claim that a detective who took David's statement decided that his attacker and the killer of James Burns were not the same person, but redirected him to detectives at Kennington, who were investigating the murder of Anthony Connolly, whose case the detective thought may be connected. Confusing, right, yeah? Anyway, David was put in touch with Detective Superintendent Shoemake and his squad that were investigating the murder of Anthony Connolly from a police station in Stockwell by that time. It was to prove beneficial. Detective Superintendent Shoemake was a long-serving detective who was widely admired and considered amongst his colleagues to be intelligent, enlightened, but most importantly, empathetic with and without prejudice to anyone or any group. Consequently, he completely understood David's anxiety about coming forward and reporting his ordeal to police, and he gradually managed to reassure him that his and his squad's sole agenda was to catch the killer, the priority no matter what part of the community that the killer's victims came from. David and Detective Superintendent Shoemake eventually managed to develop a decent rapport, and he explained to David just how difficult it was for police to investigate attacks on the gay community. Whilst he had genuine empathy and understood that there was this atmosphere of distrust and a reluctance to cooperate with police, and indeed, he was all too aware of those in the police who were responsible for the reasons behind this, 
Shoemaker explained that it was equally the lack of forthcoming information about possible suspects being passed on from the gay community that led to so many unsolved cases, not just solely deep-seated police prejudice from some. Because of this, he explained, his officers had a difficulty in understanding the complexities of the gay scene and its variety of specialist groups. He then made David a proposal. He wanted David to go undercover, if you like, trawling the bars and clubs of London's gay scene looking for the man who'd tried to kill him. Now David was at first understandably reluctant about this and extremely nervous about it, which you would be, wouldn't you, eh? I proper would. However, he came to realise that the same man who'd very nearly taken his life could quite easily take another one. It could even be happening that very night. If he didn't give his assistance, another man could die at the hands of the strangler, then another, then another, and I'm sure you get the idea here. With this in mind then, David agreed to help Superintendent Shoemaker and his team, and an operational plan was formed. David Cole, beginning that very evening, would head around to several of London's well-known gay night spots, beginning in the market tavern where David had met his would-be killer, to see if he could identify his assailant in the crowds there. He was not to be alone at any time, four plainclothes officers would be monitoring him, shadowing him at all times, and always near enough to be able to intervene in seconds if David appeared to be in harm's way. So at 9pm that evening, the 15th of May 1986, and just a week after David had nearly lost his life, the undercover operation began in the Market Tavern. But after 45 minutes, there was no sign of the assailant, and it was decided to move on to another location. The team moved next to the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, adjacent to Vauxhall Station, for a similar period, before heading more into central London and to the nightclub Heaven, near to Charing Cross. Here, the team again spent close to an hour whilst David Cole scanned the faces of the clientele in there looking for the man who'd almost killed him, but nothing, he was nowhere to be seen. By close to midnight, the team had decided to head back into South London, and this time headed to the Prince of Wales pub in Brixton, where Anthony Connolly had last been seen alive. When they arrived there, it was packed to capacity, it was dark, smoky, the days when you could still have a tab in pubs of course, and deafening. Suddenly though, David signalled frantically to one of the plainclothes officers. He'd just seen the face of the maniac who tried to strangle him. David pointed to a dark-haired, slightly built, good-looking young man who was leaning against the wall watching the crowd. Bravely, he made his way over to him and spoke to him, and then returned a moment later to the plainclothes detectives, shaking like a leaf because he confirmed it was without doubt the man who'd tried to strangle him a week before. Monitoring the man for a short time, when the moment was right, he was grabbed by both arms by detectives and ushered out into the street, where the detectives then identified themselves and told the man he was being arrested on suspicion of attempted murder. The man, speaking in heavily accented English and given his name as Michael Lupo, was cautioned, handcuffed and was then taken to Brixton Police Station. Upon arrival there and following his processing, David Cole once again identified Lupo to police as being the man who'd attacked him a week previously, whereas Lupo at first denied ever having even seen or met David before, 
and claimed that he'd never been to the Market Tavern pub before in his life. Detectives expected that on the basis of this, during an interview he would clam up and either deny everything that was put to him, claiming mistaken identity, or else he would just say nothing at all. But instead, his denials were to prove to be just token resistance. After only a short time, in calm, heavily accented English, Michael Lupo was to make a full confession. And it was much, much worse than police could ever have imagined. 33-year-old Lupo, an Italian national who'd arrived in England in 1974 from his native Italy, told police proudly that his surname translated from Italian was Wolf, and then quickly confessed to police being responsible for the attack on David Cole, plus the murders of James Burns and Anthony Connolly. But then he started to talk to detectives about two other killings which he claimed had taken place between the murders of James Burns and Anthony Connolly, one of whom had not even been discovered, and the other, that had been discovered but that not had been linked, the victim in question, an elderly homeless man, had not even been identified. Lupo directed police to another basement in Kensington, where they found the badly decomposing body of a young Irishman named Damien McCluskey, bearing the now all-too-familiar bite marks, mutilation and evidence of strangulation. Lupo had also calmly explained to police that the other killing he'd admitted to had been carried out in the early hours of the morning when he was walking home from an evening in Heaven Nightclub to his flat in the Earl's Court area of Rowland Gardens. When he'd approached Hungerford Bridge, a homeless man had accosted him and had asked him for a cigarette, but instead Lupo, in a flash of blind rage, had overpowered and strangled the man with his bare hands. The body had been found the next day, but detectives had seen no reason to connect that case to any other killings. There'd been no evidence of any sexual activity, no ligature or bite marks, and the victim, who was never sadly identified, was not connected with the murder of James Burns. By that time also, Detective Superintendent Shoemaker and his team had visited Lupo's flat in Roland Gardens, and also a flat in Sydney Mews in Chelsea that was owned by Ken Adam, a film production designer and art director who'd worked on several of the James Bond films, and that Lupo had told police was a temporary residence of his. He explained to police that he'd stayed there for several weeks looking after the occupant, an elderly Italian widow, whose daughter Letitia was Ken's wife. Ken and family adored Lupo, treating him like a son, and were very deeply shocked by news of his arrest. Letitia could say no more except to tell police that Lupo was a lovely man who was very kind to a lonely old lady. We'll see how lovely soon. Among possessions of Lupo's that were removed from the guest bedroom in the Chelsea flat were some leather-bound volumes, photo albums containing snapshots that Lupo would probably not have shown the elderly widow, nothing that you'd leave lying about on a coffee table, you know. A number of appointment books for what transpired was Lupo's alter ego, Rudy, in which the handwritten entry, Surgery, recurred quite often, and a number of address books, now these address books were found to contain more than 700 handwritten entries of names and numbers, several of which were incomprehensible. 
Perhaps they were in code, perhaps written when Lupo was under the influence of alcohol or drugs, but the entries contained the details of a number of much-publicised persons, famous names from the world of fashion, music and entertainment, photography, members of London society, and even far-distant relatives of the Monaco royalty were in there. Many of these were contacted during the subsequent investigation to see if they could assist, but in many of the cases, it's believed that they were mystified as to why their details were in Lupo's address books. The majority of them didn't know him and didn't have a clue as to why or how he had their contact details. It transpired later from a friend of Lupo's that he was a terrible name dropper and he was desperate to break into the scene of mingling with the rich and famous and if he got the chance of getting one of these numbers or some sort of vague connection like that, he'd snap at it just to name drop that he had their details. Although Lupo spent most of his time living here in Sydney Mews in Chelsea, he also had a flat in Roland Gardens in Kensington, and when police visited here after his arrest, they found the trappings of the expensive tastes that Lupo had developed over the years, and a penchant for expensive designer and silk clothing. A wardrobe revealed no less than 46 pairs of silk socks, identical to those that he'd used to throttle his victims with. They also found all of the paraphernalia associated with Rudy, who it was apparent was Lupo's alter ego, a rent boy whose clients visited him for the purposes of sadomasochistic sex. That was what surgery was a code for. There were cuffs, shackles, belts, whips, crops, ropes, vibrators, dildos, studs, you name it, it looked like a Fred West car boot sale. And pride of place in this homemade dungeon was a set of iron chains fixed into the ceiling above Lupo's bed, where clients were tethered to before being whipped and thrashed with all sorts. Whatever floats your boat, eh? So, detectives had a killer in custody that had freely admitted to trying to kill six men, and had succeeded in four of these cases. But who was he, and what had led to such an orgy of murder? Michael Lupo, or Michel DiMarco Lupo as he was originally known, was the son of working-class staunch Catholic parents born in the northern Italian city of Bologna in January 1953, and he took great pride in the translation of his not-uncommon Italian surname, as Lupo is the Italian word for wolf. He'd tell everyone that he met this, feeling that it marked him out somewhat. An unremarkable child though really, upon leaving school Lupo went to an art college on the back of glowing references including that of his form master who wrote him to be a boy of high quality whose morality is beyond question. But after only a short period here, in 1971 Lupo was conscripted into national service in the Italian armed forces and reaching the rank of private was assigned to the 22nd Italian commando unit. He served his national service unremarkably, without any trouble, and whereas a soldier he was taught with various weapons and tactics, he was also taught to kill with efficiency, if necessary, without the aid of blunt, sharp or explosive instruments, just with his bare hands. This, however, wasn't the only thing that Lupo learned while serving his conscription. He either discovered whilst he was here, or perhaps he had a pre-conscription suspicion, that he was gay. 
Now, Lupo was completely comfortable with his sexuality, but this did worry him so far as to the effect that learning of it may have had on his parents. Lupo feared that their rigid adherence to the strict Catholic doctrines he'd grown up with meant they'd be shocked, shamed, perhaps even made to feel guilty if they learned of his sexuality. Which, when I wrote the episode, and even as I read it now, seemed so draconian, it's unreal that that could even be, isn't it? But there you go, sadly, some people are very like that, aren't they? Terrible. With the intention of preventing them from learning this, Lupo decided that the only option was for him to leave the army and to emigrate. He had no particular destination in mind at the time, but in addition to his native Italian, he'd learned over the years to speak, with varying degrees of fluency, four other different languages, including French and English, and so he believed that this gave him a wider choice of countries to choose from than the average educated intending emigrant. Lupo eventually narrowed down his choice of destination to either the United States or England, specifically London. He chose London, perhaps swayed by the reputation of glamour and free-for-all spirit that London was renowned for at the time, for in the early 1970s when he was considering emigrating, London was coming off the back of what is commonly known as the swinging 60s, isn't it? Beatlemania, the Rolling Stones, the music, clothes, cars... You get the idea, who wouldn't want to live there? So by 1973, Lupo had arrived in London without a penny to his name, but he was enchanted with the place as soon as he'd got there. It completely lived up to his expectations. The swinging 60s had given way to the seedy 70s. Soho had more grumble bars knocking about than you and I have had hot dinners. You could get all sorts, more than you could get in a little lucky basket. You know what they're like and it catered for everybody's tastes. Lupo loved it. And as much as he was enchanted by what he saw, so were many Londoners who caught sight of him. Italian, good-looking, what you could describe as handsome, and in great shape, Lupo had a habit of flaunting this, wearing his shirts open to the navel just above his Gucci belts, trousers that were as tight as a gnat's arse, and always smelling like he'd just bathed in Aramis. Added to this his impeccable manners, his charming smile and his warm, funny accent, and Lupo turned heads wherever he went. He soon had a multitude of friends and had gained no trouble in finding a job when he'd arrived in London, finding work in a branch of Yves Saint Laurent in Knightsbridge's Beauchamp Place. However, Lupo instead decided quite quickly, and based on what transpired to be quite sound advice for him, that the easiest way to make a decent amount of money was as a hairdresser in an elegant West End salon, so he began training in this vocation. He completed training for this in just a month or so, while still working a five or six day week at the boutique, before practising different aspects of hairdressing, shampooing, cutting and blowing, setting, perming etc, had a selection of different salons. Eventually, he was engaged to perform in a large but chic unisex salon in Belgravia, where here Lupo did indeed earn incredibly well. So well did he earn in tips, for example, and only a small percentage of which he ever declared to the Inland Revenue, that these dwarfed his properly taxed salary. When he wasn't working, he was out enjoying himself and taking a large number of lovers, the majority often gone in the morning never to be seen again, and replaced the following evening. He also over time developed an increasing penchant for bondage, 
and a distinct taste and preference for sadism. After a few years, Lupo took a flat in Kensington's fashionable Roland Gardens area, a location just off Old Brompton Road that was within easy walking distance of his workplace, and which Lupo initially furbished in a conventional way. However, over the years, as he'd sought more and more idiosyncratic sexual pleasures, and as he entertained more and more male friends, he began to add in some more, shall we say, unconventional fixtures and fittings. There were shackles added to the bed and the ceiling, and it wasn't uncommon for visitors to sit down on a chair there, but to have to first move a homemade riding crop or a whip that would make Indiana Jones green with envy out of the way first, because by this time, as a moonlighting trade from his hairdressing, Looper had begun to branch out. Taking the business name of Rudy, he placed a number of small adverts in gay contact magazines under the headings of esoteric or bondage no holds barred. This brought a steady stream of men who would arrive at his posh Kensington flat and pay cash in advance for him to torture and beat them for their sexual satisfaction. Although at times it's reported that his neighbours would complain about Lupo's loud playing of records, they never seemed to go and confront him about the screams of pleasure or pain, or the sounds of spanking or paddling or lashing, whatever, cries for mercy that must have stemmed from his flat. I guess there are some things that you just don't broach, dear. He managed to branch this venture out even further, and over time became well-travelled in the pursuit of being sadistic to masochists heading over to places as far afield as Paris, Berlin or even to New York to wield his whips and paddles for paying customers, and also became known as quite the exhibitionist in many of the London clubs that he frequented. One report claims that Lupo caused an especial stir in a club one night by climbing out of a coffin dressed as a nun, then lifted up the habit he was wearing to reveal that he was wearing only fishnet tights and a pair of rubber pants underneath before proceeding to grab a nearby reveller for a bump and grind dance. This was allegedly witnessed by none other than a radio DJ named Kenny Everett, who went on to develop a successful television career by utilising a very similar act in the on-screen character Cupid Stunt, which is a cracking spoonerism and one that I had to really be careful saying there. In fact, I had to re-record this bit a couple of times. In fact, Lupo had quite the penchant for dressing up, and at the time seemed to favour black leather, owning a number of such outfits including a mind-boggling creation of large boots, a leather leotard with large specifically designed holes and embellished with thongs, a single iron and chain studded wristband, and a leather hood with slits for the eyes and mouth. Nice, eh? Exactly how I'm dressed recording this now, that is. As his alter ego, Rudy, then, Lupo would often wear this get-up to entertain clients, including one elderly gent who reportedly loved nothing more than having Lupo wearing this lot, then being abused by him until his skin was redder than a London bus, whilst dressed as a pre-war public schoolboy, complete with cap, blazer and satchel. Well, the mind boggles, doesn't it, really, eh? Must be like a kinky slipknot meets an ACDC act, that. Lupo had carried on in this vein for the remainder of the 1970s and well into the 1980s, and for months, perhaps years before the spring of 1986, Lupo had taken to regularly wearing leather clothing that he'd deliberately torn, a 
a signal to like-minded prospective partners that he would meet in London's clubs and bars of London's gay scene that he frequented that he was into violent sex. By this time, he'd left the Belgravia salon and was now managing a clothing boutique, Tan Gudicelli, that was located very near to the world-famous Harrods department store and so was able to buy a variety of leather clothes at discount prices, which he would deliberately tear. He'd flaunted himself on his torn leather clothing in clubs and pubs all over London and his looks, accent and confidence ensured that he was never without an admirer and had enjoyed all manner and extent of violent sex with several men that he'd met and left with. But for someone who was so deeply experienced in all manner of violent sadomasochistic sex, it had a plateau and it got boring for him. It was sometime around here that a new desire arose in Lupo, the desire to extend violence to mutilation and then possibly onto the next step, murder. And a possible trigger? Well, as we've said, back in 1986, the full magnitude of the AIDS epidemic was only just becoming apparent and consequently many were still enjoying casual sex with a series of different partners without realising the urgency of practising safe sex. Lupo was certainly no exception here. He estimated an interview to police that in his years in London, he'd had sex with between 3,000 and 4,000 different men, and it hadn't been unusual for him to have sex with three or four men in a single evening. Most of them were strangers. I never even knew their names, he told police. Well, in March 1986, his many years of promiscuity and carefree sexual activity caught up with him when Michael Lupo was diagnosed with HIV. Now, undoubtedly, the diagnosis must have shocked and devastated him, but not only that, it infuriated him and it brought out a monster. It was never confirmed for sure that his diagnosis was the ultimate trigger to Lupo's actions over the next few weeks but it can't put you in the best frame of mind learning or something like that, can it? And it certainly didn't curtail his promiscuity, no way. In the many years since the virus has been discovered, there have been several documented cases of bitter and angry HIV-infected men and women who've tried to gain some twisted kind of vengeance by transmitting the virus to unsuspecting victims. Perhaps Lupo was one of these too. Perhaps he felt that some of his pickups deserved punishment for not having HIV, and more than one police officer and crime writer has shared this view. Whatever the reasons, by Saturday the 15th of March 1986, Lupo was ready to kill. One of the pubs he frequented was the Cologne pub, where just a few years before, Dennis Nilsson himself had been a semi-regular there, who surely needs no introduction, does he? Seven years later, the other sadistic murderous individual we've mentioned, Colin Ireland, was to use the Cologne as a hunting grounds for his own killing spree. But that Saturday evening, Michael Lupo was there, and he picked up, or was picked up by, it isn't clear, 36-year-old British rail worker James Burns. They left the pub together, but didn't go to Lupo's home, which was only a short distance east of the Cologne, instead heading a short distance north to a derelict basement of a house in Warwick Road, nearby to the Earl's Court Exhibition Building. It's unclear exactly what transpired, but it can be surmised that in the course of violent sex, Lupo strangled James with his own silken Burberry check scarf. Before doing so, 
He'd beaten and bitten James all over his body, smeared excrement over him, even biting off part of his tongue in the manner of what was later described as being like a rabid wolf. Lupo was literally living up to the Italian translation of his name. Pretty chilling stuff, that, eh? Only shortly after he'd left James dead, two homeless men entered the basement, a favoured haunt of theirs to drink methylated spirits in, and discovered the gory sight of James Burns laying dead on the floor, his clothing torn off him. A cursory look was enough to sober up both, and they immediately reported their discovery to police at nearby Kensington Police Station in the parallel Earls Court Road. An investigation was begun, but with a lack of forensic evidence and DNA profiling in its infancy anyway, plus no one who may have noticed Lupo and James Burns leaving the Cologne together imparting this information to police, the investigation rapidly hit a brick wall, leaving Lupo free to kill again. Almost three weeks later, on the Thursday the 3rd of April, Lupo visited the Prince of Wales pub in Brixton's Cold Harbour Lane and it was whilst here that he met his second victim, Anthony Connolly. After chatting together for a while and an assignation arranged, Lupo left the pub just ahead of Anthony who remarked to his friends at the bar just before he left, I've just met the most beautiful man. That beautiful man was to savagely beat bite, mutilate and strangle Anthony in the squalid railway shed nearby to his Brixton council flat that they'd opted to use just a short time later, leaving him defiled and undignified to be found by children two days later. Now as I explained earlier there was a two week delay in the post-mortem upon Anthony, one factor which delayed police in realising that there was a multiple killer operating within a very small geographical area of London. And by the time they did start coming around to the possibility that, yeah, okay, we've maybe got a double killer running round, they were wrong from the off. Because by that time, Lupo had killed twice more, almost three times. On Friday the 18th of April, Lupo had enjoyed an evening at Heaven Nightclub and in the early hours found himself walking towards his Roland Gardens flat across Hungerford Bridge where he was accosted by an elderly homeless man who attempted to solicit a cigarette from him. Now Lupo was not only a non-smoker, but he was an ardent supporter of the anti-smoking organisation Ash, because he considered smoking to be a filthy habit, and this was possibly enough to enrage him. Enticing the man across the bridge and onto waste ground in the region of London's Royal Festival Hall, Lupo strangled the man, and again, there's some ambiguity as to how. Several sources that I used for research claim that it was with his bare hands, whilst another source I used claims it was with a simple black stocking that he had on his person, and not his favoured silk ones. Either way, Lupo strangled the man and fled. The body was found just a short time later, but the identity of the man was, or has, never been established. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this killing was not connected with either of the also as yet unconnected crimes, the murders of James Burns and Anthony Connolly, for Lupo had not inflicted the savage, almost maniacal bite marks that were his trademark upon this victim. He was to later claim of this particular murder. I just decided to do it. I certainly didn't get any sexual feelings from it, certainly not. Something inside me was screaming to the world. 
Presumably, that something inside him was still screaming the following evening, because that evening, Lupo either picked up, or was picked up by, a young kitchen porter named Mark Leyland, whilst both were in the Prince of Wales pub. The pair headed for a derelict public convenience nearby, where during the course of sex, Lupo attacked Mark savagely with a length of iron piping that had come adrift from the redundant plumbing. Mark managed to fend the attack from Lupo off, however, and Lupo fled. He did report the attack to police immediately, but not one in his business fully disclosed. Mark told police that he'd gone to the toilet simply to relieve himself and had suffered attempted robbery with violence. Then almost a week later, on the 24th of April, Lupo was in the Copacabana Club in Earl's Court where he met a 24-year-old Irish hospital porter named Damien McCluskey. Leaving the club with Damien, Lupo had lured him to the derelict basement of a house in Cromwell Road, South Kensington, where as Damien began fellating Lupo, he'd strangled him with a silk stocking. He had just after his death also savagely bitten Damien, and had even this time made an unsuccessful attempt to gouge out his eyes. Now McCluskey was missed and reports went out looking for him, primarily as he was a known member of the IRA and officers from Scotland Yard's special branch who'd been keeping tabs upon him had become concerned at his sudden disappearance, suspecting he'd evaded them because he was plotting a terrorist attack. Instead of him laying low, plotting some atrocity to join the several that the IRA were responsible for in London in the 1980s, Damien's body lay undiscovered in that derelict basement for weeks until Lupo directed police to it following his arrest. Lupo next found himself in the Market Tavern pub on the 8th of May, where he met and attempted to kill David Cole, which his failure to do so was to lead to his arrest a week later and his horrific confessions, the attack on David Cole, plus the four murders. A few days later, Following reports of Lupo's arrest in the papers, Mark Leyland reported to police that Lupo was possibly the culprit he'd reported that had tried to rob him, so he claimed. And when this suggestion was eventually mentioned to Lupo, he agreed that it was indeed he who had attacked Mark. A charge of attempted murder in Mark's case was subsequently added to the list of charges that Lupo was facing. Although he was open to police about the crimes that he'd committed, he offered little in the reasoning behind why he'd decided to kill. He was reported as telling police after his arrest, I've been searching my mind for a reason for my actions, but I've not come up with the right answers. I have been very, very promiscuous, and this left me totally drained and emotionless and insensitive to sex. I frankly don't know what answer to give you. There was something in me, I was searching for something, but I really don't know what it was. I'm not mad, I knew what I was doing, I could say I feel sorry, but I'm not. What's the point of saying sorry when I'm not? More than 13 months were to pass before Michael Lupo stood trial for his crimes at court number 7 of London's Old Bailey before the Recorder of London, Sir James Miskin, and a jury on Friday the 10th of July 1987. During his remand period, he'd been examined at great length by several psychiatrists and not a single one was to find any evidence that he was suffering from any recognised mental illness or personality disorder. 
Lupo pleaded guilty to all four murders and two attempted murders described here, and his trial counsel, Lord Gifford, said very little during proceedings, almost as little as Lupo himself, who apart from saying guilty to all counts of the indictment in a barely audible voice, said nothing else at all. Detailing Lupo's horrific killing spree to the jury, prosecuting counsel Julian Bevan QC told the court, He gave detailed accounts of this catalogue of horrific killings. He said at the time he had an urge to kill. He knew what he was doing, and indeed, he intended to kill his victims. The Crown suggests that his urge to kill, with the exception of the tramp, was no more than a product of his sexual inclinations, which at the time of the killings gratified his sexual tastes. In short, he enjoyed it at the time he did it. The jury heard how Lupo had never explained to police what had made him turn to murder, but it was suggested to them that it was anger stemming from the fact that he confirmed to police that he'd become HIV positive, and it was the realisation that he was living with the AIDS virus that had caused him to wreak a terrible revenge on the community that he blamed for infecting him. Stood in the dock, Lupo was then sentenced to four consecutive terms of life imprisonment, account for each of his murders and for two terms of seven years imprisonment for each of the attempted murder charges against Mark Leyland and David Cole. Sir James Miskin told him, For a man whose life has been such that he suffers from AIDS, whether your fault or not, it will be absurd to make a minimum recommendation on your sentence. In your case, life means life. Following Lupo's conviction, Detective Superintendent John Shoemake said, we will never know why he killed, whether it was a revenge on homosexuals in general because he'd contracted AIDS, or whether killing was the ultimate thrill, he never explained his actions. It may have had little to do with sex, the murder of the tramp certainly wasn't sexually driven, maybe the gay pickup routine was just a way of luring men to their deaths. I am sure, however, that if we hadn't stopped him, he would have killed again and again. Police in several countries that Lupo was known to have visited were reportedly re-examining their files on several unsolved murders of similar victimology and method after his conviction, although Lupo has never been named as or even seriously been considered a suspect in any other killings. He was to spend most of his prison sentence in HMP Frankland in County Durham, where he was first transferred to in 1988. When he was first transferred there in October of that year, he was placed into the general population, which it was reported caused other prisoners to refuse to return to their cells and stage a sit-in protest in the prison recreation room at over Lupo's transfer there from another prison. Now this was again down to how ill-informed people were about how HIV was transferred back in the late 80s. I remember seeing some of the, when you see them now, horrific and ignorant adverts on television about it and whereas any medical condition of a prisoner was normally confidential Lupo's rampage and subsequent trial had been quite high profile thus his diagnosis was known amongst inmates. The situation was quickly and peacefully resolved however reportedly only leading to loss of privileges for three inmates who steadfastly refused to return to their cells. 
Following this, the next time Lupo's name was again in the news was in 1993, when during the killing spree of Collin Island, police were reportedly heading to interview both him and Dennis Nilsson for insights about the at-the-time-at-large Collin Island in some sort of Silence of the Lambs type thing. It's not reported how that went, or if it was beneficial at all, but Ireland was caught a short time later. The tale is all in the Gay Slayer episodes, enthusiasts. Michael Lupo, the Wolfman of London, as the press christened him, and which he would have absolutely revelled in, I'm sure, died of AIDS in the hospital wing of Franklin Prison on Sunday the 12th of February 1995 where he'd spent much of his time in prison, with various AIDS-related illnesses leaving his condition steadily worsening and had refused any treatment in his final weeks. At the inquest into his death, held on Monday the 20th of February, my 17th birthday actually that was, the doctor who treated him for this period, Dr Michael Snow, told the inquest, Mr Lupo made it clear he wanted no other treatment, he was offered treatment at an outside hospital when he became steadily worse, but he decided to stay in prison. He wanted to be in familiar surroundings. From December, he would not take treatment or allow himself to be treated. He was given nursing care, but did not take any painkillers, though on his last day, he did take some morphine. Yet in all his time in prison, less than eight years of the life sentences that he received, Lupo never once expressed any remorse for the horrific carnage that he'd caused. Now I don't think Lupo would have stopped killing had he not been bravely identified by David Cole that night in the Prince of Wales. Don't get me wrong, I don't think he was trying his hardest not to get caught. I mean, he left two of his six known attacks alive and he left ligatures at scenes plus the eyewitness accounts and bite marks that he must have known could have tied him to at least three of the four victims, should they be linked and he arrested, but he wouldn't have voluntarily stopped. He wouldn't have woke up one morning and thought, shit, what have I done? I'm not doing that again. No, it's not happening at all. For the theories put forward as to why he began killing, psychiatrists who examined Lupo suggested it was possibly out of disgust with himself, revulsion at what he'd become, or desperation by his inability to find an identity for himself and his casual relationships, coupled with his feelings of violence and sadomasochism. Possible, that's sure, yeah. But I personally share the long-held police theory that it was triggered by him learning that he'd contracted HIV and wanting to lash out. I'm equally inclined to think that as much as he was lashing out, bitter at contracting the HIV virus and wanting to strike back at those who he blamed for this, gay men, he'd also found himself the ultimate sexual thrill, as much as a sadist can push and the ultimate pleasure taking someone's life. And for someone who was into as much of a variety of sexual activities as Lupo was, then it's easy to see how he would be constantly pushing those boundaries, isn't it? So when he found out that he himself had contracted the HIV virus, did he then think, to put it bluntly, bollocks to this, I'm dead anyway, might as well do what I want. Does that then explain the savagery in his killing? Was the savagery of the biting and the smearing of excrement upon those he'd just killed? Was it as much a mix of defilement and hatred as it was excitement? Or was he purely reveling in the fact that his name literally translated to wolf and in some way he thought he would now try and live up to it? 
or had the shock of his condition actually rendered Lupo impotent? Because I can also see how coming to terms with being HIV positive would affect one's libido. Must be something that I couldn't even begin to imagine hearing it, to be honest, let alone come to terms with it. And I think it would be the last thing on my mind personally. So was this the reason for such savagery? Frustration at himself projected onto another? Who knows, I'm just thinking out loud here as ever. I thought these crimes are horrific enough anyway, aren't they? And they're at least on a par with Colin Island's spree a few years later. But what I thought was perhaps even more callous with Lupo, despite the people that he killed, was the fact that someone reportedly as promiscuous as he was, then how many people that he didn't strangle did he possibly, deliberately, pass on HIV to and condemn to a slow but certain death? The unknown victims of Michael Lupo doesn't really bear thinking about that, does it? There's relatively little to research concerning Lupo and his crimes. Sure, he's mentioned in several articles and true crime texts, but this is limited to short chapters in several books. There is no definitive book about the case. Sources that I use to research the episode I will of course provide links to in the episode's show notes, as well as episodes from another couple of true crime podcasts that have covered the case. So that should you want to listen to these to compare and contrast with this one, Links to these will also be there. Something of interest that I did find also was an online video recounting the case by the curator of the True Crime Museum in Hastings in East Sussex. Now I've never visited here, although I would absolutely love to. Has any listeners ever been? Get in touch, let me know. The unique point that I found during this video was that the museum has managed to get an original artwork piece by Lupo that's hanging up in there depicting his colourful interpretation of what else? Lon Chaney Jr. in his iconic role as the Wolfman. Yes, yeah, seriously, I mean, what else was he going to paint? Surely something to go and see that is, isn't it? And if I'm ever down in East Sussex, it's somewhere that I'll definitely head to. I know it's been a bit of a savage one this week, but I hope as ever that it's an episode you found to be an interesting one and hopefully an informative one as well. I now ask you folks, as I always do, what then are your own thoughts about the case of Michael Lupo and the carnage that he caused? Was it a rampage triggered by Lupo learning he was HIV positive? Or was it coincidental and it was just the culmination of his sadomasochism? It was that boundary that he eventually pushed through into. I'd love for you to tell me what you think. The thread is, of course, up in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group, should you wish to on there. Or you can get in touch with me to do so through any of the show's social media links. I'll always answer and get back to you as soon as I can. It's wrap-up time now, and we're a third of the way through Series 4 already. And now it's time to crack on with the second third. Some fascinating and interesting cases coming up there as well. I'll be back next week for an episode featuring multiple cases, a bit of an unsolved week next week on the show, which I hope you'll join me for. But if you can't wait until then, and for those who are fancying some extra full-length episodes of the show, then you can do as a Patreon supporter of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. It's easier than playing hide-and-seek in a phone box, and it costs less than each month than is probably down the back of your sofa. 
There are 19 full-length bonus episodes now available for supporters, with bonus episode number 20 coming shortly, as soon as I choose it and write it up, pretty much. And links are in the episode show notes this week and every week. Until we next speak then, I've been, still am and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, thanking you guys all very warmly for joining me here today. I wish you all safe and good times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care guys, cheers and goodbye for now.